our CEOs here, our community staff, and I believe that we have a quorum. So uh, before we go in that, um, I think, uh, Rana, do I have you go ahead to kick off the meeting? Yeah. You ready for roll call? Um, I'll, I'll welcome everyone and then we'll okay. do roll call. Is that okay? Yes, thank you. So a uh, bunch of wonderful faces here on the screen. It's like the Brady Bunch. Um, all right, everybody, welcome to the April 23rd uh, QPSC. As a reminder to all, in light of COVID and in accordance with our government health, we are again going to have a Zoom meeting. Remember that there is no public meeting space available for this meeting, so that just needs to be said. With that, uh, we'll move into roll call, please. Trustee Bouquet. Here. Trustee Shequin. Here. Trustee Hernandez. Here. We have a quorum. Wonderful. So uh, that was roll call. And at, as a reminder to all in the audience, while we have 25 participants right now, uh, our convention in QPSC is to move directly into closed session. And as a reminder, closed session is an 1157 protected discussion, and it's used to discuss confidential matters related to medical staff, accreditation, and risk management. So if you're not directly related to one of those discussions, we, uh, I, and I don't know the technical aspects of it, but we'll, you will rejoin uh, us after we do closed session. Uh, and now I'll defer to, I think Alexander or Mike will, will help guide us how we're going to move into closed session from this format. Mike? Going into closed session to deal with the items as uh, set forth in the agenda, you'll be moved to a uh, breakout room. Uh, so there and then uh, I'll let you know when you can start, okay? Mike, do, do we need to do anything as participants or you're going to be moving us? You're moving. I mean, you'll, you'll take care of that because I don't know how to do that. Yes. Okay, thank you. Uh, moving you. Wonderful. I think we uh, have moved back into open session. Thumbs up from everybody. We're here. Everyone hears? Wonderful. Um, we just came out of closed session. We had some nice dialogue. So uh, welcome to all the participants. Looks like we have 31 participants in this open session. Welcome to the April 23rd uh, QPSC. As I previously discussed right before we went, went into closed, in accordance with government health and safety guidelines, uh, calling for social distancing, uh, this, is, this meeting is being held virtually. There is no public meeting space for this. Um, a couple of adaptations which we've made, uh, you, you know that QPSC has historically started at 2.30. We started at 3. Uh, we're making some moves. I've been working with Trustee Aboleta, who's also logging in in a second, uh, to, to make our, our, all our board meetings more efficient. So with that, I'm going to go to item B, which is the consent agenda. Trustees, that's in your packet. Can I entertain a motion to approve that consent agenda? So moved. Seconded. And, and that I'll open up for a dialogue. Item B1, the minutes looked fine. Item B2 were, were standard privileging forms um, from Dr. Ballard. Those were neurology and vascular multifacility. And item B3 is of particular interest to all of us. They were the temporary disaster privilege applications and privilege forms. I know uh, that our medical staff office has uh, worked tremendously to move these along. And just to reflect for the board and all who are on this call, uh, this represents a lot of work uh, uh, to put us hopefully in, the, uh, in, a, in a better position to respond to surges. Um, I'm now uh, born out of a question from Trustee Shaquin about uh, a little bit more about disaster privileges. 
I'm going to defer to either the chiefs of staff, Dr. Marzouk or Dr. Ballard, or or Satira to give us maybe a, a two-minute walkthrough about what it took, the implications of disaster privileges. Uh, if I can ask one of you to just give us a little bit of walkthrough before we approve uh, this consent agenda. Uh, I, th I think that uh, that might uh, be best uh, addressed by, uh, by Satira. But our objective, uh, overall general objective, is to allow uh, uh, physicians from various specialties uh, or to assist during the surge uh, or surge in patient load uh, in case of, of a need, whether there's Department of Medicine, emergency room, uh, and uh, with, a, with an abbreviated credentialing process uh, from uh, within our uh, system, uh, and likewise from physicians outside of our system as well. And I'll have Satira go through the actual process of what uh, is uh, necessary or what we require. Thank you, Dr. Marzouk. So what we did as a medical staff team is we worked with our physician leadership from both the AHS and AH medical staffs. And we took existing applications that were already medical executive committee and board approved, and we pared those down. We pared them down to collect um, limited information that would be necessary to effectively do credentialing and privileging in terms of a surge or a disaster related to the pandemic of COVID-19. In that process, we are doing a pared down, as Dr. Mersuk mentioned, a shortened application process. It includes verification through a web crawl in our medical staff database of the California medical license to make sure there's no flags or issues there, as well as if applicable, if the provider has a DEA license, we're doing the verification to make sure that that is current if they need to write prescriptions for patient care. And we are also having those privileges signed off by the physician leadership, so department chairs, physician chief of staff, uh, the CMO, and so we'll be sending a report through in next month's meeting to ratify those privileges that have been granted for a temporary disaster standpoint. As far as applicants, the AHS medical staff is the only medical staff that has granted temporary disaster privileges to external uh, physician and CRNA outside of our organization. So we haven't had a bolus of community providers for temporary disaster privileges. The majority of the temporary disaster privileges were actually granted um, for our senior residents within our own training programs, which was really beneficial, as well as we've expanded our critical care access for ventilator privileges across the health system using existing providers on both of our medical staffs to get cross privileges in the event that we need coverage or staffing to address any increased capacities in our ICUs. And with that, I'll actually just pause and see if there's any questions. So I know that uh, uh, Medicare is pretty, um, there's just regulations around Medicare fraud and, and credentialing. Is that is that check still going on? So there isn't a past history of uh, poor behavior? So for the providers that are already on our medical staff, that's part of our standard work. So we've had only one external provider from the community, um, and there were no issues in that particular applicant. Yeah, so you d you're checking for that, though. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Delvecchio, for seeing the, the SOS. <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, Trustee Shaquin, did that help answer your questions? That's perfect. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Satira, I, bet you, I, I wish you had better command of detail. Thank you for that. Um, uh, I think that uh, gives a, a, a great clarity around this. So, uh, as I said before, I think this helps put us in a position uh, to to respond better uh, to any surges, knock on wood, should they ever come. So, thank you, Satira. I know your team has uh, killed yourselves to get these across the finish line. So, thank you. I have a question about this. Um, is it the case that all physicians at AHS were invited to participate in these um, emergency credentials? Was this a blanket offer to everyone, or was there a selection process of who was being invited to do this additional credentialing? So Dr. Hernandez, I can't provide the specificity around those dialogues. I do know that, um, for example, in the Department of Medicine, Dr. Rachel Baden, who has been very involved with our COVID-19 disaster planning, actually spoke with her division chiefs and people have volunteered. Um, the, to your point of whether or not there was a blanket approval of temporary disaster privileges, yes, as um, noted in some of the board documents today, we did do that around telemedicine so that our providers could effectively um, increase our access capabilities per se and make sure that patients could either have telehealth um, virtual check-ins or even um, e-visits and we could do that under the existing CMS waiver. Understood and uh, to your point a moment ago only one physician was invited to participate in this from the outside that had not been part of our original uh, group of physicians, right? We've actually had calls from community providers that I've been fielding that are interested in volunteering since we haven't surged at our um, Our command center and leadership is still looking at how we would address the volunteer providers from the community through our provider labor pool. Okay. Um, we're prepared if we hit a surge and we need to um, increase that capacity. The community provider for full transparency is our medical director from CHCN. And I believe she reached out directly to Dr. Rachel Baden, and then we followed our standard work. And we're giving a badge to her tomorrow, and we're ready if we need to call upon her to assist us with patient care. Thank you so much. Thank so if I could clarify and add a little bit to what's been said, the selection process for the people who have gotten disaster privileges have been based on the anticipated need. And that's pretty much a, a very basic concept in disaster medicine in that people fulfill um, functions more so than named roles. Mm -hmm. So, for example, the senior residents and the appropriate uh, level of training for the ER docs um, were all screened by the ER leadership in medicine, Dr. Baden and, and the other COVID um, response leaders within that department made decisions concerning which would be the most appropriate people if needed to step in and help independently manage a ventilator or with assist manage a ventilator. Um, so it, essentially the telemedicine was to cover the shift in the clinics from in-person visits to 
um, telephone visits. And, and that is a much more global and extensive group of people who do that job anyway. So that, that's why that particular telemedicine was a universal offer versus the more selective disaster credentialing of the other docs anticipating what they might be asked to do in, in the event of a surge. So it, was, it actually was very thoroughly thought out and designated who would get invited. And the same scrutiny, I think, is happening in terms of outside docs, because if you have people that are, gonna, are not at least remotely prepared to do something, then they're going to take up more energy and time and, and cause potential patient harm than people who we think we can put in those positions because of their level of training and, um, and ability to, to make independent practice decisions. Thank you, Dr. Bernard. Yeah, thank you, Kelly. I know disaster medicine is a passion of yours. Um, uh, Trustee Shaquin, any, any questions at all? Yeah. With that, um, all in favor of approving item B, the consent agenda? Aye. Aye. Against? None. Opposed? None. With that, we close out item B, the consent agenda. We'll now move into item C on the agenda, which is uh, the QPSC chair report. Uh, uh, there are two items that I have there under the chair report. Item one is another continuation of our second year of QPSC reading club. Uh, so in this version of our reading club, I, I, I took some selections from a book uh, which all board of trustees should have now. And this book is called Getting the Board on Board, What Your Board Needs to Know About Quality and Patient Safety. I know that Dr. Hussein is smiling about this book. Um, uh, so all trustees have this book or should have this book. Rana helped kind of execute the delivery. Um, at, to help us along in any reading club, I've picked a few selected articles. These are in your packet, but we're going to do a little bit of reading together to help us out. And we just, uh, these are selections from, uh, from Chapter 1. Again, in your packet, apologies for those of you who don't have it. Um, I, I, I think the context here is, is one, we're the quality committee. Uh, but two, remember that the Joint Commission just came through here, and one of the conditions of participation was governing body. And, and that, is, that is us. And as the chair of the Quality Committee, I take this extraordinarily seriously. And, and, and uh, in some regards, this is, partially, this is on me to help guide the dialogues that we have with regard to quality. So that's part of the rationale behind the Reading Club and for item C2, which we'll talk about. So I'll help read for those of you who don't have access to the video. Uh, this, this book really outlines what a board should be thinking about quality and safety, and I think this will resonate for any of us who work in this system. Uh, on page 13, healthcare regulatory and government agencies overseeing your organization put quality and safety of patient care as a top priority. You and the other board members must therefore make understanding quality and safety issues a priority as well. As well, The overall success of your organization, in fact, depends on quality and safety, and the organization's board is ultimately accountable for that and for being transparent about it. And, you know, we've had these dis discussions ad infinitum, but we will continue to have them in our organization. So if we're not providing quality, uh, a quality and safe environment, what are we doing here? Uh, should be the question. This chapter, and as the whole book is organized, for, for those of you who like the Reader's Digest version, into uh, little bullet boxes. One of the bullet boxes is called Call to Action. 
So for those who don't want to read the whole book, you can read the call to action little snippets. And then there are so-called conversation starters. One of the call to actions is board responsibilities for quality and safety. And, and it, it, it sort of inspires us as a board and says you and the other board members who help lead the governance of your healthcare organizations must take these responsibilities seriously. As seriously, if not more seriously, uh, with all uh, uh, due respect to the to finances in our organization, they they must at a minimum sit hand in hand. Um, the next call to action is on patient engagement. Uh, as important, it says, as important as it is, patient engagement shouldn't take the place of other quality and safety efforts. It should supplement, not supplant, robust protocols. Uh, and then, it, and it gives some guidance as to what we can do. As as a funny side note, we've had discussions previously about the patient voice uh, in this QPSC. I'll say we're still on that journey, finding where we put that patient voice in this organization. And uh, uh, ultimately, we will get around to that report, which we talked about last year. Um, I'll call you later. Conversation starters uh, for patient engagement. And I, and as, as those of you who know me know that I love questions. So here are some of the questions which come out of this, this little snippet. What actions do we take to engage patients in their care? Uh, that's actually a loaded question. It's a big question. What are our goals for patient engagement? How do we measure and benchmark our progress towards these goals? How do we share our performance in this area with our patients, their families, and staff? I think these are big questions for which we don't have well-defined answers. There may be answers, but as an organization, per perhaps not well-defined. Uh, the next bullet point is conversation starters for safety, culture, and communication. Uh, I, I found this one to, 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 to ring true as well, and I'm going to read these uh, to to, to this committee. Uh, question one, is disruptive or intimidating behavior tolerated in our organization? Hmm. It's a big, it's an important question. Second, how are such incidents handled when they do occur? Third, what can board members do to support management in maintaining a safe and just culture? And last, what more can the board do to make sure communication is easy and open among patients, staff, management, and leadership? I think this is one of our existential questions that, that we need to uh, answer as an organization with regard to our safety, culture, and communication. The next call to action was performance improvement. Boy, I think we, we, we are pretty good at trying to push our performance and then uh, finding the ways on which we do that effectively, I think relate to this. The next call to action had to do with infrastructure. Again, I'll urge you guys to read that. That's in the open public packet. Then there, the, there's one which I, I think often rings true, especially at the public mic. Uh, it's uh, one of the call to action hot boxes was staffing. Uh, and I'll quote, if you want to attract and retain high quality staff, however, you have to go beyond providing sufficient staff. You need to maintain a work environment that's safe, effective, and efficient. You need to create opportunities for advancement and growth, including those... This meeting is being recorded. You need to ensure competitive compensation and benefits. And you need to foster a strong organizational culture based on common vision and mission. So here are some of the conversation starter questions. 
What positions and how many positions are open? How long have the positions been vacant and what recruitment efforts have been made? What are the turnover statistics? What do our employee opinion and staff satisfaction surveys tell us? What are our patient satisfaction scores? That's actually one of our True North metric dashboard items, as I'll, I'll plot ourselves. What action plans do we have to address weaknesses in staffing? What are our plans to increase the likelihood of effective recruitment and retention strategies? With that, um, uh, that's the, the Reader's Digest version of the packet. This chapter one of the book, again, I, I'm going to encourage, uh, uh, which I'll, I'll do in closed session for the full board, all of us to, to, to actually get on board uh, with, with our job here overseeing a quality organization. So with that, I will open it up for any dialogue by the trustees. Uh, Taft, you know, I, I love the um, snippets that are there. I loved it when I saw it in the uh, book, and I'm glad that you called those out. My question is, um, I don't know that we are structured with our time at meetings to dive into these topics. And so it requires that we agree as a board to spend our retreats probably in a full day discussion around quality and a full day discussion on finances. And I would be very happy to put those two together because we have to look at many of the steps that we want to take uh, to improve um, patient relations, quality, safety. Uh, we seem to have to look at those consistently against what's, what's within our reach. What can we do with the resources that we have? Um, and so my concern is these are great and when do we talk like this as yeah. a board? When do we actually work on looking at these as a board? And I particularly feel this pain right now, given the dynamics that are going on uh, between us and uh, certainly uh, representatives from labor who are really frustrated with us. Um, I have shared with a couple of uh, trustees, with uh, also Terry uh, in our PR office, um, it, it seems to us to, to just feel like we need to have um, a convening where we can talk about these things in great depth and not just sort of have a surface report. It feels very artificial to try and dive into these without real authentic dialogue, not just a presentation, not just a letter being read, but an actual discussion. Um, so I put it out there. I'm happy to look into facilitating something called appreciative inquiry, uh, world cafe. Those are techniques for facilitation around really, really hard, complex uh, issues that have many different stakeholder perspectives. But fundamentally, you have to walk into them knowing that at the end of the day, you're making decisions that inspire trust. And that doesn't mean that everybody's going to get their way. It means Whatever we do out of those discussions, um, we, we find a way, a path forward to try and address some of these um, so that we are better at meeting the needs of our patients and certainly creating that safety culture that we all care about and provide the quality of care we, we uh, desire. So that was my take once I went <laughs> Maria, what I'll have to say is I don't have anything to add to that. I think it's perfectly stated. and. Uh, the more time we talk about quality, the bigger smile on my face you'll get. And, and, and so uh, you're right. It's about us finding the space. Our, I see that our board president is included on today's 
uh, discussion. I don't know if she has audio or what have you, but these are discussions and the timeliness can't be more timely than now, especially as we move into our uh, adapted 2020 calendar. We have a retreat coming up next month. Uh, so I think the, these are big, big items. Uh, Trustee Shepard? Uh, a couple thoughts. Uh, first, uh, I think we have uh, an institutional culture that is um, distractive in nature. Um, uh, so I've been on this uh, board of trustees now for a little over two years, and it seems to me if I was to try to answer the question why we're not talking more about quality is because we're spending a lot of time talking about other things, including conflicts amongst us. And um, somehow we need to get to the space where we're um, having less of those conversations and more conversation um about how to build trust and accountability with each other. And I, I think, uh, I think uh, Trustee Hernandez has um, a good roadmap to a conversation, but I, I think this is, the foundation is so weak right now. I'm, I'm, I'm becoming rather cynical about where we are right now. I'm hopeful about the future, but I'm not very hopeful about where we are right now. I, I was very impacted to see that our CEO was uh, uh, threatened with racial uh, uh, attacks last week by members of the family here. I mean, what the hell is going on? You know, when we get to that level of, of um, attack, um, and, you know, quite frankly, that's, that's, that's wrong in every single way imaginable. That's, that's an act of violence. Um, so we're at that level right now. I'd say we need to really um, step back and try to figure out um, how to get to a place where we're talking about quality. And, uh, and also, I, I, as a chair of the finance committee, I don't, I don't feel there's any space to talk about what we value in terms of where our limited resources uh, can go. I don't even know how to have a... You know, I'll say that in the next meeting, at the board meeting. I, I'm not really sure how we go through a budget process where, you know, it, it feels as if we don't have any, uh, any of the options that could solve problems for us, but we have all the problems. And no one wants to take, step up and take responsibility. I guess we have to do that, ultimately, but no one wants to do that uh, <laughs> allow us to do that and uh, without getting involved um, in, in attacking. Um, so, the, again, the question for me around quality, bringing it back to quality, is how do we move to a quality conversation when we are spending all our time, when our great assets, our management staff, our, our staff members are spending all their time in other conversations? So that's where my head is. Whew. Cleansing breath. <laughs> you know? This is tough. I think we're in a tough place. Yeah. Uh, the, we, it's incumbent upon us to create room for all of it. 
and uh, is it overwhelming? Yeah. Is it paralyzing? Yeah. Um, but we don't really don't have another choice. So uh, these are the things where we just keep tinkering with the machine is, 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 is what I'll continue to say and, and appreciate small victories when we can gain them. And, and there are, there are a million little small victories which happen here all the time, which we don't celebrate. And uh, I think uh, uh, we have opportunity to, to sow the seeds of success in this organization. And, and I'll shut up about that. So um, that's having the dialogue. We, we can't afford to not have the dialogue. I think we all agree. And, and uh, Trustee Shaquin, I man, I hear you. I hear you. With that, we'll go to item C2. Let's talk about evolving the quality dialogue for the AHS Board of Trustees. And this is a discussion about chief of staff reporting and then in its later version about quality reporting. I submitted an SBAR, which is uh, for everyone's documents. Uh, you know, I'm an SBAR nerd. I love, I love that because I think it's hopefully creates some clarity. Uh, I'm going to briefly go through this because we're a little bit in bonus time right now. Um, here's the situation. The, the chiefs of staff possess essential perspectives on clinical operations, clinical quality, and culture at AHS, stuff that we're talking about. The chief of staff voice helps the board of trustees to understand the medical staff perspective, just one perspective, an important one, but just one perspective on the state of clinical operations, clinical quality, and culture at AHS. It serves the board, the administration, and the key stakeholders uh, to hear the chief of staff voices in the most impactful and efficient way possible. And the board, uh, uh, as we all know, been, we've been having this dialogue. This, trust, uh, this touches on what Trustee Hernandez said. We need to try to be more efficient and, and concerted. So um, with uh, uh, President Abueleta's permission, I've been kind of tinkering with, at least within this committee, as it interfaces with the full board. We're trying to be more efficient and thoughtful about every single agenda item and using our time to the maximum of benefit. And maybe our analysis is going to be we don't have enough time to do this in the current structure. The background, currently the chiefs of staff have identical agenda positions in both every QPSC and every board of trustee meeting that follows. It's a redundant agenda item, if you guys all recall. Uh, and the content of these items are largely identical with one exception. The chief of staff dialogue in the QPSC setting has had a history of, uh, uh, I'll say, being a little bit more robust than the same discussion at the board level. And, and the, the common phrase, we talked about this in detail at QPSC, often happens. And then I think the non-QPSC members don't get the flavor of the culture, the operations, and 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 the clinical quality that that probably would serve them. So uh, my assessment is that the current chief of staff reporting structure is redundant. Uh, the reporting they report identical items at both the QPSC meeting and the board of trustee meeting immediately to follow. This redundancy, in my opinion, reduces the richness of the dialogue for the full board. And uh, we often note we talk about this in detail at QPSC. Therefore, non-QPSC Board of Trustee members do not get the full benefit of this perspective. So my recommendation, and we're going we're gonna to pilot it today, uh, is we maintain the Chief of Staff Report agenda item at the full board meeting. This will be the primary venue for the Chief of Staff voice. Someone needs to mute, please. 
Uh, and uh, I, I, I will note uh, that I didn't just go rogue on this. I, I ran this by our board president, and uh, she, she, she uh, uh, agrees to a trial of this. So effective this meeting, we're going to eliminate the redundant components of the chief of staff report. And uh, nonetheless, I will maintain a placeholder place for the chief of staff because some regulatory items they need to put out into open session. So I wanted to give them a placeholder. So with that, any questions or dialogue about this? And, 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 and this is why we got to start at 3 instead of 2.30 today. Mm-hmm. I fully support this, and I would like to emphasize a couple of things about this structure. Um, I think our regular meetings should be the opportunity to review and track the metrics that we know we need to review and understand and look at and see where we are in terms of quality, in terms of professional development maybe, also um, uh, licensure. All of those things are fine for this regular a monthly uh, meeting, and we keep that cadence very well. I'm worried about what we talked about in the first item in this session, um, which is when do we have that chance to go more deeply into those big discussions? And so as long as we can keep this cadence as we do in our monthly meetings, I feel really good about that. It does not answer when we make time for those deeper discussions. And so I simply want to just make sure we do this. Those conversations need to happen in our retreats and we cannot reduce our retreats to other topics that then do not allow us to go into quality of care and so on. It's, I don't know, I'm, I'm a little frustrated right now. And I would say, um, We've been at this for quite a while, and it should not be so hard to figure out what do we need to track monthly as a, as just simply a management team, a leadership team. Um, and we should not have to reinvent this wheel too often. I'm glad you're clarifying it, uh, but I'm more concerned about uh, the items in the prior um, portion of our agenda. How do we get to those? And if it means calling special meetings of this committee, fine. But I, I just don't want to squeeze anything more into our monthly meetings that keeps us from having a space to talk about those other items in retreat or other uh, types of meetings. Sorry. Uh, no, uh, nothing to be sorry about. I mean, that's that's why we try to have as rich a dialogue as we can in this site. I, I, I hear everyone's frustration. Uh, uh, I'm not immune to it, is what I'll say, uh, which is why I'm trying to retinker the machine uh, in as much as I can. Um, I, I'd like to consider this for future state, maybe considering following the same kind of approach for Dr. Hussein's quality report. So, so not the report, but actually the space for the dialogue at the full board. Uh, you know, for ha- perhaps Dr. Hussein can say, I presented the data metrics at the QPSC, and those are in your packet, of course. I'm available for any discussions. And then we could say, Dr. Hussein, what are the big ticket items here? That, that what, what are the top three things in order which are bothering you? And for the full board to hear that, I think that would maybe, uh, in, in my in my la-la vision, <laughs> this, this maybe creates the spark for which we say, that needs to be a breakout uh, meeting, uh, so-and-so. When, whenever, uh, because 
I'll, I'll say we we are th- this board is trying to do those things. We're trying. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we we had last had a breakout session a couple of Mondays ago. We've never had one of those before, and and I I, I thought that was a fruitful dialogue. Um, so I, I I hear you, uh, trustees. I hear you. Um, so with that, I will I'll just uh, give that one more last hook. I'm going to have this discussion about whether we should do this with quality as well. That's a discussion with uh, 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 Trustee Aboleta, uh, which we can have uh, uh, out, outside uh, the confines of this meeting. So with that, I'll close item C, and I'm at plus 11 minutes. We'll go to med staff reports. I just said that med staff reports, uh, they're going to have, uh, if you will, a different platform for this in the full board meeting. Uh, Chiefs of staff, uh, Dr. Berard, uh, Dr. Marzouk is here. Uh, do, uh, is there anything that you need to tell this uh, QPSC which uh, outside of what you would present at the full board uh, this evening? I have nothing to add. Okay. Joe, are you there? And I see Mike. Mike is here as well. Yeah, I have nothing to add. I mean, I, I presume that you're going to want me to just give a report on San Leandro's status then, correct? Uh, 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 tr- uh, Trustee Abuleta runs the full board, and uh, if, she, if she asks me to help guide, then then I, I, I will be happy to, uh, to to engage that dialogue. Sure. Um, um, Dr. Marzouk, anything to add at this, at this placeholder? No, uh, uh, not the design. Uh, it's uh, We'll have a more discussion at the regular board meeting, right? Yeah, the regular board meeting. That'll probably be around 5.20 or so. So that that's how you're getting time back. We will close item D out, and we will go to item E. Dr. Barbaria, this is uh, the ambulatory SBU report. Some elements of this uh, for the full uh, audience were discussed in the closed session. Uh, we use closed session to discuss about things which put the organization at risk or uh, what we would be uh, considered uh, items um, which uh, would be constituting trade secrets. Uh, there's the legal that. Uh, uh, you have 25 minutes earmarked for this, Dr. Barbaria. Um, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I know our schedule got a little bit delayed due to the unforeseen um, situation that is COVID-19. Mike, um, are you able to show the slides? Perfect. Figured it would be better for Mike to do this than to do double duty. Um, So similar to previous months, uh, there are a lot of details in the report, and I recognize that it is packed with information, so I welcome folks to interrupt me as we go along if there's any areas where the board would like clarification or for me to go into more detail. Otherwise, I'm going to focus mostly on the higher-level summary on the slides and allow for as much dialogue as possible. So, Mike, if we go on to the next slide. Um, so first and foremost, obviously, all of us um, and the entire world, to be honest, have been impacted by COVID-19. As we in ambulatory have gone through the last few weeks, uh, there's a number of different things we've been focused on. And so this is a slide that we've shared with all of our ambulatory leaders and with some of our frontline staff thinking through what do we need to do to actually take care of our patients during this time. And obviously our surge planning and system response has been focused as it should be on this first wave of patients, really worrying about people who get infected with COVID-19, who need um, care and especially critical care within our 
system and throughout the county. I think as the national press and sort of leaders across the country are starting to recognize there are other waves of healthcare needs that are coming our way. The second wave that has already been recognized is that patients with other medical conditions not related to COVID, you know, have had you know, fear aren't coming in. So rates of patients with strokes and heart attacks coming into emergency rooms for emergency treatment has dropped nationwide. Many states are reporting increased non-COVID-19 mortality probably related to this. So we worry about all of the patients that aren't calling us um, because they're scared to come in for care. The third wave is really one that we probably haven't started seeing yet, but we know is out there is all of our patients who maybe have delayed their care, haven't gotten their routine lab tests, you know, didn't pick up their medication refills on time and are going to have worsening chronic conditions as a result of that. And the fourth wave has certainly already started, but just the incredible mental toll that this pandemic has taken on the entire world and our communities, as well as sort of the worsening toll that is likely going to come as unemployment rates rise. So we in Ambulatory really started to think through how do we prepare and plan for not just COVID, but all of these other waves that are coming our way. Can go to the next slide. Um, so this is just sort of a high-level summary of all of the different things that we are doing to tackle all of these waves. So certainly in our clinics, we've tried to convert mostly to telehealth. Uh, we were not doing really any telehealth prior to this um, one, because our payers weren't paying for it, and two, our infrastructure hadn't, prior to Epic, really been set up to do this. And so most of our clinic visits are now done by telephone, and we have some exciting pilots going on for telehealth. And I have uh, Jenny Cohen, who's our ambulatory associate CMIO, has joined us. I'm going to invite her to weigh in in a few seconds to just share some of the really exciting work that's been happening. And we had our first video visit today done out of our pain clinic with a patient who is at the Fairmont SNF, actually, um, and was able to do her entire appointment through an iPad. It's really kind of amazing. Um, we obviously have really been focused on all of our employees, allowing telecommuting where possible, socially distancing, making sure that we are cleaning all workstations. Um, we have more than adequate amounts of supplies for PPE and training around this throughout all of our clinics. Um, and then we also have launched employee testing. So for Alameda Health System, all employees who do need to be tested, ambulatory is providing that service out of our urgent care clinic. And with the recent um, uh, issues in our post-acute, we really partnered closely with Richard Espinoza's team to provide testing to all of the employees who needed it at uh, the ARU previously and more recently at Parkbridge. Um, the surge planning, as I'm sure you've been aware of, if and when we get a COVID-19 surge, which thankfully our state hasn't experienced yet, we are prepared to offload the emergency room and divert patients through um, into the ambulatory clinics. And you have many providers within ambulatory who've gotten some of the emergency disaster privileges that was described earlier. We've also been challenged to think about how do we actually interact and communicate with our patients during this time. So I asked Jenny to speak to this, but we had two mass emails that went out to thousands of patients. Um, we've launched centralized nursing triage so that patients who are sick can, you know, talk to a licensed qualified professional who can help them think through where they need to go to seek care and how to stay safe. And then we've really been promoting MyChart as a way that patients can stay connected, access healthcare, um, even during these challenging times. So Jenny, I'll ask you to weigh in and Raphael, if you're on the line too, if you guys have anything to add. Thanks so much, Paul, and thanks to the board for giving us some time to share with you this exciting work. Um, I started as the ACMIO in February, right when COVID started rearing uh, its ugly head, and from the get-go, the team was really invested and involved. 
we were able to build out a screening tool within Epic so that our frontline staff who are not medically trained could ask scripted questions to quickly uh, identify patients who needed masking and to be put in isolation rooms. And then from there, things really took off. Um, just as Paul alluded to, we were able to set up a video. We're setting up video visits, but we were able to set up telephone visits literally almost overnight. March 16th, we started. Um, and part of that is us providing the technology and the resources. But a much larger part is the training the um, and the support. So in addition to building out resources, we also worked hand-in-hand um, hand and lockstep with ambulatory leadership to create training material to make sure our frontline staff was supported to work with clinicians who were curious about what are the best practices for telehealth um, and how do we look at the literature to make informed decisions? Uh, today, just as Paul mentioned, um, Arena Williams in Pain Clinic was able to do a physician-to-patient uh, communication through Zoom Secure HIPAA-compliant chat. And one of the really fascinating things was the patient was actually using an iPad that um, the IS team had furnished to Fairmont to all our subacute um, sites in the setting of COVID when patients were unable to talk to their families. So we got everyone set up with a fair number of iPads in order to facilitate patient-to-family communication, but none of us were expecting to then facilitate patient-to-clinician communication. Um, in addition, I was able to do a Zoom call with um, one of my patients who's dying um, on hospice right now, and we did a conference call with her hospice um, doctor at UCSF this afternoon. So we're starting to have these stories um, emerge of the power of the technology. I was able to talk to Vicki from Peace, who's working on an internal and external story about it. And I'm just proud that as an organization, we can offer this tool to our patients and our clinicians. Thank you, Jenny. Mike, can you unmute, unmute Paula? Thanks, Taft. You saw my SOS over here, even though I don't have a nifty sign like you. <laughs> we can go to the next slide. Um, so this is just, you know, to highlight, I think, what as unfortunate as the COVID-19 situation has been, I think it has also been an opportunity for us to do things rapidly in a way that we probably never would have without this push. So, you know, telehealth is the future and the fact that this forced all of our, you know, payers and plans and our systems to align to really provide care in a way that is much more patient-centered has been wonderful. I think similarly, we've been talking about having nurse triage at our centralized call center for a while now, and this is the crisis that forced it to happen within a one-week period. So we have nurses that are stationed at the call center. So for the thousands of calls that come in um, per week, any patient who screens positive for COVID-19 symptoms gets a warm handoff to the nurse. Um, and then you'll see where the breakdown is, you know, there's certainly some sick patients that are identified, sent to the emergency room. Um, there's a large number of patients who are just given advice by the nurse and encouraged to stay home, socially distance, isolate, and not spread their infection to others. And then there's ones that either are handled by the backup on-call provider or given a telephone appointment with a provider in the clinic, usually same day or next day. 
for further triaging. And so it's just been a really great service to help keep our patients safe, but also keep them from coming in and, you know, potentially infecting other patients in person. Then go to the next slide. Um, so, you know, as we know, really what we need to start planning for is what is our new normal look like. So we also have a fantastic population health working group that was launched by Holly Garcia and Natalie Curtis on the ambulatory team who are starting to think through how do we actually get ahead of this curve of patients with chronic diseases potentially worsening due to COVID? How can we build registries? How can we do proactive um, case finding, you know, find patients who haven't picked up their medications? And I, I have to say, I, I shudder to think of what this pandemic would have been like if we weren't on EPIC the ability that we have to really know what our patients need and communicate with them, it, just none of this would have been possible in our prior legacy system. So um, if a pandemic had to happen, I am glad it's after September and not before then. Let me go to the next slide. Um, so I invite Steve to jump in. You know, I think for the Joint Commission, as the board is well aware, we had numerous findings throughout the organization, and we in ambulatory have been diligently working, you know, prior to COVID-19 and, frankly, even throughout these last few weeks to really address all of our deficiencies. Steve Kogar, Director of Nursing, has been leading that effort. Um, so you'll see all of the things that we're doing immediately. And then I will say, you know, I think pertinent to the conversations that the board has been having about quality, this has really caused us to pause and reflect as well in ambulatory that what do we need to do to restructure how we approach the work, our daily rounding, um, and our accountability so that we are not just thinking about providing really 100% reliable, safe, um, high-quality care when the Joint Commission comes around and cites us, but that we are doing it on a routine basis all day, every day, 365 days a year. Um, so we're also working on that long-term change, you know, in our practices and culture as well. Steve, I will turn it over to you if there's anything you want to add. Can we unmute Steve Kilgore? Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Thank you, Paul. Hello, board. I, um, yeah, this is a, a, a rude awakening for all of us. You know, we, we had systems set up to do monitoring, um, but they, uh, uh, thanks to the joint commission were shown to be inadequate. So we, um, you know, there, there's some education needs, needs to be done. And then there's also, um, really just, just more attention to more details and more, um, a more leadership rounding as, as we've, uh, we're setting up for our long-term maintenance. So um, I know there was a discussion earlier about uh, a, a, a culture of safety and just culture, and, um, and those initiatives that have been going on for a while here at AHS. Um, and and in, here at the departmental level, we, you know, we need to support that and build trust and um, and improve our accountability. So um, this is a real wake-up call, and, and we will continue um, attacking uh, the need for high quality. Thank you. Can we unmute Paula? Thank you. Um, we can go to the next slide. So. The next slide is really just, you know, a, a picture is worth a thousand words. And so 
as we've had a little bit of um, bandwidth with doing the telemedicine, I have to give a huge shout out to Sylvia Lozano and the STAR team. They came in and have done some work to implement the five S's, uh, which we know is a lean-based principle to help organize spaces and processes. And so they did a five S with our dental clinic, which all of you are aware we are really working to transform and improve with our new um, dental chief. And then the dental chief also implemented the same process over at our Eastmont site. So if you just look, you know, what these workspaces were like before and after, um, this work has been really meaningful and valuable in, in getting us ready and throwing away things that, frankly, are decades old and don't need to be there anymore. You can go to the next slide. All of this is tapped. We're roughly at around 10 to 15 minutes. You doing okay? Yep. Thank okay. you for the heads up. Um, so the next few slides are, are full of details, so I will open, especially members of the board that want me to probe in certain areas to ask me questions as we go through. As all of you know, back in December, there was a restructuring of some of our behavioral health um, clinics and sites, and the outpatient behavioral health clinics that are listed in the written report were moved under the ambulatory SBU. And I think, you know, the goal was this was obviously to allow the John George leadership to focus on the acute needs in the hospital and PES, um, and then also to better integrate. We know that there's a lot of synergy and opportunities for better collaboration on the outpatient side between the medical and behavioral health services that we provide. And so over the last few months, uh, myself in collaboration with Dr. Karen Weiss, who is the director of outpatient behavioral health services, Dr. Tanuj Siddhartha, who's obviously a chair of psychiatry, as well as leaders at all of these areas, we've been doing a deep dive to just better understand the programs, doing a SWOT analysis of all the programs, and then really thinking through when we look to our future state, you know, where are there opportunities to potentially expand or transform so that we are aligning with AHS's mission and vision, that we're really achieving the goals we have laid out for ourselves as an organization in terms of population health, and then also meeting stakeholder needs. We know that under Governor Newsom's plan and CalAIM, there are significant policy changes coming down um, the pipeline with regards to behavioral health funding and integration with the managed Medi-Cal plans. Um, there's QIP 4.0, which has its own host of behavioral health objectives. Um, and then obviously Alameda County Behavioral Health Care Services is also so a key stakeholder and partner um, where we can work a lot more closely. So we can go to the next slide. So the next few slides are just sort of a summary of that SWOT analysis. I've categorized them into three different distinct patient populations, but we all recognize that these patients often have more than one diagnosis and move between these different distinctions. So they are a little bit artificial. Um, we've collected all this information with, you know, site visits um, and analyses and discussions with all of the frontline staff throughout all the programs that we've been doing since December. Um, I reviewed this entire QPSC presentation line by line with all of the um, staff that were invited to do this about two weeks ago. So this definitely, I feel confident, represents um, a summary of what everyone agrees upon and, and pretty much captures our current state. So in terms of substance use disorders, we know that this is a major um, public health epidemic throughout the country and certainly in Alameda County. We are one of the few outpatient um, substance use programs that a lot of people refer to uh, 
there's patients that are identified to have substance use disorders throughout our EDs and inpatient and referred to the various clinics. We also, for our buprenorphine induction clinic, are a major referral site for the CHCN clinics. And then we've done a lot of work in recent years in collaboration with um, HICSA through our HPAC contracts to build capacity for diagnosing substance use disorders and treating them to some degree in our primary care wellness centers. I think the opportunities really are around the linkage. All of these programs still have some capacity, and we know that there's patients out there who need these services. So a lot of the work that these teams are doing is connecting those dots. You know, how do we get these services to the patients that we know need them because we have really excellent trained providers who can help the patients if we can get them to the right spot. Go to the next slide. I think the mild to moderate behavioral health conditions is, you know, universally everyone recognizes this is probably where our biggest gaps are. So the only, um, and for those of you who don't know, for mild to moderate behavioral health conditions, for managed Medi-Cal, this is actually a part of covered services post-ACA through all medical health plans. So Alameda Alliance is subcontracted out to Beacon, and we have a contract to be a Beacon provider. But any patient who has Medi-Cal, essentially, it's part of their medical care to be able to access therapy if they have a mild to moderate behavioral health condition. Um, so we do have a small footprint at both of our Highland and Fairmont clinics. They provide individual and group therapy for patients. Um, I think everyone recognizes that, you know, they are only currently serving a few patients, as you'll see in the opportunities section, and there are hundreds, if not thousands, of patients who need this service and are unable to get it. We do also have an integrated behavioral health program. So we have psychologists and trainees who provide um, longitudinal therapy for our patients at the wellness centers. Um, this is an important access point for HPAC and Medicare patients for whom we re don't really have a lot of community-based resources that we can refer them to, uh, but they also have limited capacity, so access is definitely an issue. And then within our primary care clinics, as all of you are aware, for Prime and QIP as part of the Prime program, we were required to start universal screening five years ago for all of our patients for substance use and um, depression. And we've been doing that for five years now, and the rates are staggering. 30% of our patients screen positive for one of those conditions. We do do warm handoffs and brief therapy in primary care by our LCSWs and psychology students. And then many of our primary care providers have also um, started to become more comfortable prescribing therapy really supported by our psychiatry consult service that Dr. Siddhartha leaves. Um, I think the hard part is that we know that only, you know, a small percentage of the patients who are screening positive right now are getting any sort of brief intervention and referral for therapy. And then it's a huge access issue that many of these patients absolutely need um, long-term therapy. As you can imagine, rates of trauma in our population are really high. And uh, many of the community-based programs where we refer them um, have waiting lists. So patients are waiting weeks. And if you are severely depressed, that can actually have a huge impact to your life. Um, and currently, we're sending out about 300 referrals um, a month for outside therapy. And many of those patients don't end up getting linked to care. So there's a great desire amongst everyone to be able to really provide services to this population um, within our system in an integrated way. And then the last population um, is really those with serious mental illness. And so, 
you know, I, we all know John George and PES obviously serve as the, the main point of acute access for patients with SMI in our county. Um, you see the numbers there. They have thousands of admissions and PES visits per year. Most of those patients have Medi-Cal. Um, a smaller percentage have Medicare. And then there's a significant HPAC population that's seen there, too. Um, in talking to PES and John George leadership, you know, they struggle with many of the same uh, problems that the primary care side struggles for that uh, they need to get patients to an appropriate level of care when they are being discharged from PES and John George. And there are limited opportunities within our system to do that. They certainly partner with um, contracted agencies and county behavioral health care services. Uh, but we all know that providing integrated care within the same system is often much better for the patient. We do have our IOP and PHP programs that, for the small number of patients they serve, provide very robust longitudinal care. Um, the patients that are enrolled are very satisfied, and the workforce is very committed to those patients. Many of those patients do still have services on the county side, too, whether that's case management, psychiatry services, or going to other county behavioral health care services. Um, the challenge has been that this program, patients have to have Medicare to qualify. So for any patient being discharged, um, and they have a few small number of patients who get authorized by commercial insurance, but any patient that is being discharged from John George or PES who has, um, oh, sorry, thanks, Mike, um, who has Medi-Cal only or HPAC, um, there is no point of access for them in our system. Those patients cannot be seen anywhere inside of AHS on the outpatient side. Uh, in terms of funding, unlike the mild to moderate funding that I talked about previously, which is done through the Medi-Cal health plans, um, SMI is actually a carve-out, and so that funding is county-based, so the state of California um, administers all of that funding through the county and the county you know is a key stakeholder their model of care is different so they uh, have mostly wellness centers and um, I'm going to ask Karen Weiss to jump in here because Karen you know all of the different models that they have better than I do and they are interested in contracting with us for services um, that align with the types of services they are providing throughout the county, which would potentially allow us to take care of this population in an outpatient setting, um, not just for Medicare, but for Medi-Cal and HPAC as well. And then we do also have a medication management only program, which is somewhat of a step down from IOPs so that patients who uh, no longer need IOP services are still cared for by the psychiatrist that they were familiar with and following along with in the IOP. Hey, Paul, over Karen, this is Tap. My apologies. There's a lot of data on these slides, so I'm, I'm sort of chewing it up after my preview. So you, you're saying that, that these are Medicare-only patients. What percentage of this, of this patient population is Medicare-only? Or phrased another way, what percentage of our patient population who needs this service can be served by the IOP? Yeah, so if you go back up um, to the top, it has the breakdown in terms of John George and PES. They have about twenty percent Medicare. So okay, I see it. Got it. Yeah. Yeah, eighty percent is not. I will say that percentage from our wellness uh, medical wellness centers is lower. So on the primary care side, you know, depending on the site, ten to fifteen percent of the patients have Medicare, and most don't. And there are certainly SMI patients in the primary care side too that would benefit from integrated care. And then, you know, even of the Medicare population, if you look at the opportunities, um, this is data from the last two years, roughly only about one patient per month is enrolled into the Highland IOP and only two patients per month are enrolled into the Fairmont IOP. And I'll ask, you know, Tanuj and Karen, I know you guys have 
obviously have a lot more experience than I do with John George, but I know you met with the case manager. So if you'd like to share with the board just some of the challenges that they've relayed in terms of even the patients who are eligible um, potentially utilizing these services, I welcome Mike, you to do so. Mike, if you can unmute um, uh, Karen Wise and is Dr. Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Oh, you're, you're, oh hey, Tanush, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. Thanks. Yeah, uh, Dr. Wise, uh, I will let uh, Dr. Wise speak to that portion initially and then, then I can add in. Palav actually did a pretty good summary, so <laughs> I have very little to add to that. But Dr. Weiss, can you start? I, you know, and I was switching from my phone to my computer audio, so I didn't hear the request. I apologize. What can I tell you about? So uh, I, I think we were just having a brief discussion about uh, it, it, uh, according, and again, uh, I, I don't have the full knowledge around IOP. I certainly don't, so I'm. I'm somewhat learning in real time as well. Uh, the bullet slide says that this is really only for Medicare patients. The question was, what percentage of our patients uh, uh, does, this, does this, IO, this, this specific unit serve? Uh, Paul have led me to the 20% Medicare statistic for John George. She suggested it might be even lower for IOP. So I guess I'm just trying to uh, understand uh, the carve out for only Medicare patients and what's happening with the other patients who aren't Medicare. And, and Karen, also, if you can just share your conversations more recently with the John George care managers. And so, you know, we know that not all of the patients of Medicare are stepping down into IOP and some of their reflections on that as well would be helpful. Yeah, so um, the reason that um, right now we can only serve patients with Medicare and IOP PhD um, is because um, we don't have a contract to serve the Medi-Cal population with that uh, kind of intervention. Um, the 95% of the patients we're serving right now in IOP have uh, Medicare primary and Medi-Cal secondary, um, and about 5% have Medicare only. Um, of the patients who are eligible to step down from John George, only about 2% of those actually do come into the IOP program. Uh, and we did some outreach to the leadership at John George to try to understand better why that number was so low. Um, so some of the feedback they gave us was um, around the needs of the patients as they're stepping down from John George. Um, they see the more wraparound models like assertive community treatment or full service partnerships. The county has many of those programs that they run through contracts with other community-based providers and those uh, services are really able to offer a lot of case management, a lot of assistance with housing that our patients need, um, as well as they're able to go out into the community to serve them. It's not site-based. Um, so those are more the services that the social workers and the physicians at John George are referring patients to for their discharge. Okay. Paul, are, th are there any other models of, of care in our system where we serve only a specific uh, insured population, a Medicare population, or what have you? Um, not that I'm aware of. I, I obviously am just becoming familiar over the last few months with these particular programs, but I can say, you know, certainly everywhere else in ambulatory, we do not um, discriminate based off of payer mix. And, you know, the, 
there are certainly different services that different payers pay for. And I think we've been um, pretty consistent that it may be a reality that our patients have different insurance and, and access to different things, but we never want to become a part of the system that is perpetuating health inequities. And so we really strive to make sure throughout ambulatory that whether you have HPAC or straight Medi-Cal or managed Medi-Cal or Medicare, that every single patient gets the same high quality care independent of the payer source that is attached to them. And, and we really try to go to great lengths to preserve that. Got it. So, Trustees, do you have any questions for Dr. Barbaria? Yeah, I do. I, so I, I notice under uh, opportunities, there's a reference to working with Alameda County Behavioral Health Care. <clears throat> and I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about um, what the county behavioral health care agency is really interested in providing um, to, to, the, to this group of severely mentally ill clients. What do they see as the uh, the the, uh, the best practice? Karen, do you want to take that one? Yes. Um, so yeah, so we had an opportunity to meet with Dr. Tribble, um, and Dr. Tribble was my supervisor before she went to the county. So that was very nice to be able to reconnect um, and really look at what her perspective was, knowing our population so well. Um, and what she saw as opportunities for us to partner with the county to serve more of the SMI population. Um, so one of the things that she mentioned as a possibility was a wellness center model. Um, and this would allow us to serve anyone with Medi-Cal um, who uh, wanted services and they would be able to uh, come in both for scheduled appointments and also for drop-in service. It's a mix. A model where you have some peer-based services and some professional as well. Um, and it's something that the county has now in um, different regions. Um, and it's, it's, it is a preferred treatment modality by patients. So patients really like the freedom of being able to come in for services um, when they need them and come in for those services where that they are most interested in. Um, I also talked a little bit with both the current staff at the IOP programs, the John George staff, and some other county um, liaisons about what, what they think about us doing this kind of a model um, uh, at our sites, and particularly at the Fairmont site. Um, they thought that this would be very valuable um, because um, patients are already very familiar with the campus. Um, and um, there is a, a huge need for them to have um, safe, um, uh, comfortable places where they can go, um, where they feel welcome to access services. Um, so uh, this is a model that um, I'm very excited about um, and uh, seen great success with um, in other counties. Um, um, and so, uh, yeah, we're exploring this more and trying to flesh out more what this will mean for our, our program. Dr. Wise, do you think the workforce is excited about that model? Um, Loaded question, I know. I think some of the workforce are very excited about the model, um, and um, more of them are excited about the model if it's being discussed in conjunction with the current services. Yeah. So under the, the current configuration, how, how does this program fit into our, our uh just an issue of uh, discharge and, and throughput. Is this uh, model that we're currently implementing 
uh, having any impact on the ability to move someone, say, from John George or Highland into housing or uh, other options? I mean, this is Paula Tanuja. I welcome you to weigh in. I think just sure. from a numerical standpoint, if we have thousands of PES admissions and discharges and we are only enrolling three patients a month, mm-hmm. the impact you're going to have is going to be limited. Yeah, that is the thing that, you know, overall at AHS, we have an access issue for our patients, uh, meaning in effect, there is no behavioral health services from the effective behavioral health services for mild to moderate as well as severe. We basically don't have outpatient behavioral health. And uh, when I have worked in the outpatient, you know, primary care clinics and at John George, uh, it's very hard to create a disposition plan which can, uh, which gives us confidence as clinicians to be able to see, oh, this is where he's going to be going and this is where he's going to follow up. I can make a quick phone call and I can, you know, check on this thing, how if it uh, played out or not. It's a huge issue. So in the IOP, yeah, the numbers are really uh, low there. The number of people who get transferred to IOP. We... Uh, so much so when you're looking at a conversion rate of three per month when we are discharging about 250 from inpatient and uh, uh, probably 26 a day or something something like thousand per day from a uh, thousand per month from the ES uh, out of them two or three are going to IOP uh, and also that also usually does not happen as a step down it happens a few days later so uh, you still have to work about you know, figure out the, the housing situation. And by the time you figure all that out, you are looking at uh, backs coming in, the wellness center model coming in, and that tends to be then that tends ends up being a more uh, you know a more smoother transition uh, compared to getting them to an IOP. Right. Hmm. So the three percent, the three percent is a three patients is a pretty low number, if I'm hearing you correctly, even those three patients, we don't have access directly within our system mm-hmm. to housing or community care of some some sort that would be stepped down for people. Oh, yeah, we do not have any housing uh, yeah, stepped down. I think we have some uh, beds uh, that we have contracted with for CRP level, but it, it's all in the numbers. And I, if you really look at the numbers that we're talking about, uh, we get about last night. We got twenty-five patients coming to our PES after four p.m. till this morning, right? So, you know, what do I do with these people who have come in after four o'clock, right? And um, there was a seventy-three-year-old woman who comes into San Leandro last night at ten p.m. with Medicare, Medicare. But then you need to; these people need to have Medi Medi to access most of the services. Right, all the all the county level of services as you need Medi-Cal. Medicare by itself actually is not even going to get you to IOP. But then we are waiting on this nighttime thing to kind of figure out, anyways. Uh, it also reminds me of a text that I got from Taft. I think a month or so ago, uh, he, he, he was trying to figure out who to refer a patient in his outpatient clinic to. And I, I what I you know, the thing is that from the, the mild to moderate side, again, there is not a you know, a presence within AHS which, which can support these patients. And, you know, when Taft or anybody who's referring the patient can say, oh, okay, one week later, what happened with this patient? You know, 
That's a, that's, I think overall, from an access perspective, that's a big gap and it affects quality of care. It's not patient-centered, right? And there's not continuity of care. We're a pretty big organization. We're very, you know, we see a lot of people every day. Yeah. Well, so I guess the good news is that uh, Alameda County Behavioral Health Care is very interested in working with us on this. Yeah. It seems like this is uh, a, a space of, this is a place where we could, low-lying fruit for improving quality of care for our patients who have that's my you know it seems like uh, yeah and i will say i think what's implied but maybe isn't explicit in these slides you know a big part of why governor newsom's calling proposal is structured the way it is is because we all recognize now that this division between behavioral health and medical health, it, it is both artificial and not in the best interest of the patients. And so um, to be able to integrate their care within our system, the benefit to the patient is not just around these services, but there is, there's tons of literature out there that shows this is directly tied to readmission rates on the medical side as well as on the behavioral health side, improved chronic disease control, improved outcomes you know, beyond just behavioral health. So this is a... Uh, there's a solid case on the quality side, but I would I would suspect that there's a pretty solid case on the financial side as well, which is a big issue for this system. Okay. If we're not actually yeah. integration integrating into uh, community options, housing as well as, as some other options for community care, then we are we have some of these folks sitting in uh, facilities and beds um, beyond what they really need to be sitting, you know, they, so the throughput issue is here as well, which has a financial administrative cost issue for us. Totally. Uh, I think our, if we, at John George, uh, uh, we have a lot of problems with uh, maintaining acuity by the medical standards on a given day, uh, the significant portion of our patients are what are called as a days, administrative days, which is around 30% at this time. We need to work internally to improve that. However, a lot of these uh, patients' basic situation is this, that uh, they do not need this hospital level of care in an acute facility. Right. And, uh, but there is really no place to, no real step down to get them to, and there's a gap in between. And for that period of time, uh, we are being reimbursed at A-day rates, which is, I think, one-third of what the acute day is. Yeah, it's a big impact. Once I know that... Hey, tomorrow morning this person will get a call from within AHS, and by tomorrow, and I can, you know, strongly believe that he will get an appointment tomorrow or day after, day after whenever I want it. You know, that will make a huge difference to be the confidence level our providers have in being able to create an alternative disposition plan to continued hospitalization until we find absolutely something certain. So all, um, I'm, I'm, uh, although she's not talking to me directly, I can hear Trustee Hernandez in my, in my ear saying that we don't have enough time for these dialogues. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I'm going to characterize this as an essential dialogue for this organization. And what I can uh, uh, commit to is uh, keeping this on the close radar of the, uh, of the QPSC. And while we may not be able to do that, I mean, this, the, the, the information here is so expansive. I think you just have to hear it again and again and again to get to the robust questions. So, um, what I can what I can uh, promise to the all those in behavioral health is that we can keep this on the active radar, not the Q three month or Q four month cycle. Uh, I note that next month is is a, a, a retreat month. I don't know what we're going to do with QPSC, 
but I'm going to keep this on a regular radar for this QPSC uh, in discussion with all the interested parties. Um, and that can be my promise. Uh, I hope that's acceptable. Uh, Paula, do you think that there will be interval information to present at next month? Yeah, I believe so. So in terms of next steps, you know, I think this has been great progress in that we now have an inventory of what um, what our resources are, as well as what the major gaps are and what our patients' needs are. So we are continuing dialogue with all of the behavioral health staff to help us sort of co-design what a robust both wellness center and mild to moderate program would look like for our patients. Um, you know, I point about the finances is well taken. We, we really approach this from a clinical patient need and access perspective, but a financial analysis absolutely needs to be done um, as part of that. And we're also continuing conversations with the counties. I'm hoping to pull those together into at least an initial um, plan or next steps to bring back to the board. Please, Hernandez, then Del Vecchio. Uh, just a quick question about projections of increased patient load in this area, because we know that um, the pandemic is creating a, a large number of individuals who are really uh, going to be, uh, I think, um, just completely overwhelmed by uh, the financial impacts that are now being felt again and again, um, the death of family members, uh, the loss of the routine. I mean, there's so many elements that are going to really disrupt people's lives. And so I've heard wonderful things about your plan, but I'm not sure I'm hearing what's the way you're going to handle the surge, if you will, around this patient population. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think as you heard in current state, we essentially have no footprint for outpatient mild to moderate therapy or for SMI patients um, who do not have Medicare. And so in current state, we actually don't offer very many of these services at all. And those patients will get in the queue for the community-based beacon providers, the county behavioral health care services, um, you know, which I, I think it's clearly, it's our moral imperative to be able to take care of these patients. And I think that wave is going to be twofold. It's not just the mental stress of what's happening. We know that thousands of people, if not millions, across the state are losing their jobs, and we have to imagine that Medi-Cal enrollment rates are, are going to increase over the months and years to come. So I, I worry about our ability to serve this population, not just in mental health, but even on the medical side. No, thank you, sir. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I was going to make a, can you hear me? First? Yes. Oh, make sure. Okay, thank you. Uh, I was going to make a comment before that, but I'll uh, also add to uh, Trustee Hernandez's uh, question. So to uh, Trustee Shequin and the intersection of quality and uh, uh, finance in this uh, space, uh, apologies, I stepped away a second, so if this is set my apologies. But um, we are, in the board meeting, we'll be talking more about kind of the status update on the uh, behavioral health contract negotiations with the county. And as you recall, that has been more about the uh, contracting for uh, um, the cost of services at John George and NPES and recognizing a, a fiscal gap to close between the cost of providing the services and the reimbursement we get for those services. Uh, we have made some progress on that front. Uh, we're hoping to be able to make more, uh, but the reality uh, from our vantage point appears to be that there's still somewhere in the, uh, and Kim will report on this later, but maybe roughly uh, 14 to uh, $15 million of uh, gap between reimbursement and expenses. We've always said we don't necessarily want or advocate for full funding for the cost of John George because we agree and believe that there is a lot of uh, opportunity for admin or reduction of admin days and 
uh, denial, uh, denial days so that we can place patients appropriately in the community. We could probably avoid uh, readmissions if we have more robust services in the community. Yeah. This uh, first hit, um, Palava has been talking about um, uh, also widens that to say, and what role could we play in further uh, uh, spreading access to those services, particularly for that population? Uh, and it would be a way of making uh, what I think would be argued a, a higher quality, a more valuable investment in services for this continuum than to uh, invest in keeping them at John George any longer than they otherwise need to. So, so we would like to uh, sort of lift up this, uh, this fact that we still have this gap, and this gap is driven by access challenges and needs, and uh, um, a, a way to close that gap uh, may certainly be, and we hope to continue to find, partnership with the county to expand services both within our walls but also with other partners as well. So that was one, uh, and then really quickly, um, um, Trustee Hernandez, your, your question, uh, where am I blanking on it now? Um, oh, about what's happening uh, coming down the pike. So we've started some conversations um, around uh, trying to find out from the state and from the county, social services and others, forecasts. Everybody's, you know, crystal balling this, but forecasts on what we think what might be the anticipated uh, growth in the Medi-Cal population as a result uh, of the economic uh, decline that we're all experiencing here. And as a virtue, uh, as a byproduct of that, then being able to have some informed discussions as a part of our own budgeting process for um, what opportunities might exist within the county for the number of lives who might be um, falling on to Medi-Cal roles uh, and then needing to uh, engage care with us or others and, and being able to sort of um, uh, plan for that, but plan for that with some sort of alignment with folks who may be closer to it and be able to see earlier signs in terms of trends and numbers. So we don't know that yet, but we're starting those outreach efforts to see what we can figure out and then how we align. So to close out this session, as we're running out of time, uh, Mike, can you un unmute Palov? So um, Palov, you know how I normally end my uh, session with you guys. I ask you your top three concerns. Given the tensions the recording and, has stopped. and the anxieties we've had, I'm going to do a little twist on that. I this meeting is being recorded. I want you to tell me the top three successes you've had with regard to the IOP over the past few weeks. And I know you, I've been talking about. So a little twist, I always care about what concerns people, but uh, to Trustee Shaquin and myself and Trustee Hernandez, any little victories help. <laughs> so from your perspective, give me three victories that you think you've had in these difficult dialogues. I think I will preface to say that it, it probably goes without saying that there's a lot of trust that has been lost, you know, over the years, but especially recently. And so I think the fact that um, all of the staff and providers were involved with actually creating this QPSC report, editing it line by line, and that this is a product that everyone has signed off on, I think is a huge victory. Yeah. Um, and not something that, frankly, I've done with previous reports because uh, it hasn't been needed. I think just the sort of face-to-face -face time that despite COVID we've been able to put in and, and to at least have dialogue. You know, I recognize that the dialogue may not always be aligned. There may still not be 
trust, but there is engagement and people are coming to the table and I really appreciate and value that. And then, you know, just a huge shout out to Del Vecchio that in the midst of everything that's going on, he came and spent several hours with me and all of the IOP staff um, who joined in person and by phone uh, over at Fairmont a few weeks ago. And I think to be able to engage with the CEO directly and hear Del Vecchio, I know um, it was one of the best received things that um, I think the staff has experienced in a while and they really appreciated it. Okay. That's really, uh, appreciate that the dialogues are moving forward. Are they perfect? I'm sure they are not perfect. Um, but, but, uh, I can tell you it is our charge on the quality committee to keep hearing from this. So we will put, we will keep this on the radar. Let, let our, our, our colleagues in behavioral health and specifically the IOP know that this dialogue is essential to the organization and we're going to keep pushing forward. So we will keep this on the, uh, QPSC agenda until proven otherwise. <laughs> so uh, maybe a small report, uh, even if it's only 10 minutes, Trustee Hernandez will create time. And uh, uh, maybe this in aggregate will turn into the full day session over six months or what, whatever time we have. So uh, thank you for all the efforts I know everyone's put in. With that, we'll close item E. I'm already in bonus time. Uh, item F and item G are regulatory affairs and patient safety and the True North metric dashboard. Uh, the good Dr. Hussein always gets ripped off on time. Dr. Hussein, can you uh, maybe in about three minutes give us the key bullet points and, uh, as always, a nicely written report um, that you want uh, the QPSC to know vis-a-vis -vis safety regulatory affairs? So I think we have a bit more time in the full board, but number one, uh, um, kudos to everybody who participated in the writing of the evidence of standards correction. Although it is but the first step, it is still a monumental step considering the 106 observations we had to respond to um, without a single request for um, editor clarification. It is the first step in our journey. Um, and as you heard already from our ambulatory CAO, um, and I believe that that is resonating throughout the organization. <laughs> A question of how that becomes uh, embedded in our normal observations um, such that it is not a surveyor or the quality team identifying those issues but it is a part of our day-to-day -day discipline um, on the uh, I want to kudos uh, to the post-acute care team who underwent multiple surveys uh, by CMS run infection control practices for COVID not a single finding in fact I think by the fourth survey the CMS surveyor who was doing it by Zoom already said, oh, I know you've got this down. Um, so a moment of celebration as well, as you heard throughout, um, that when we put our minds to things, we uh, are in fact uh, excellent and very capable. And thank you for the post-acute team for modeling that. Um, and then our TJC uh, uh, stroke certification was renewed at Alameda Hospital. Excellent. Um, so I think those are the biggest highlights uh, we talked uh, about some patient safety issues in the closed session, which will receive some additional um, light in the coming month. And then from the True North, uh, Met True North Metrics perspective, um, uh, uh, um, uh, despite everything that's going on, in terms of QIP and Prime, um, we've hit our 20 metrics for QIP, very close to hitting our baseline for Prime. There's some discussion going on in state about how that should be adjusted in light of um, COVID. Um, as we are practicing uh, infection prevention, 
um, even more carefully than we ever have. We've seen all of our hospital-acquired infections go down, our PSIs uh, remain good, um, and then our patient experience um, still remains in the green, and we'll watch that carefully because we know that these are challenging times for our patients and our staff. So um, work to be done, moments of reflection, um, and um, I know we'll talk a little more about resilience and discipline to make sure we continue this work. Thank you, Dr. Hussain. Trustees, any questions for our Chief Quality Officer? Nope. Good. Not for me. Excellent. So great work as usual, uh, Dr. Hussain and your quality team. Um, I just remind us we're about to enter Q4, and this is roughly the time when we start projecting next fiscals to North metrics. It's a little bit crazy that we're trying to project next year, given all the things we're doing. doing. I, I, I imagine that sort of, uh, despite all the uh, uh, things you're navigating, that's somewhere on your guys' radar um, about whether we're, which metrics we're going to keep, which we're going to change. Uh, uh, maybe perhaps that's also a discussion for a retreat um, uh, next month, and uh, Trustee Hernandez will probably be instrumental in helping build that dialogue. So uh, thank you, Tanberry. And you do have, a, uh, you're going to report out to the full board about a TJC? I yes, I believe I, I saw that on the agenda. So yes. we'll have um, some more time to do a Q&A there. Okay. Well, with that, we'll close out items F and G. Item H is the planning calendar. As I said, uh, next month is the board retreat. We will st still have a QPSC in some version. I have to uh, have discussion with the executive team about how they envision that retreat weekend or two or day, how that's going to go, and that will dictate how the QPSC goes. Nonetheless, whatever version of QPSC we do, we will include a discussion about a follow-up on behavioral health. So with that, we'll close out item uh, H, the planning calendar, and item I, uh, council, Mike, take it to the house. Sure. This is actually going to be Alexander. So uh, the committee closed session reviewed and approved the credential report and took no further action. With that, uh, six minutes late. My apologies. We will close QPSC for April 23rd. I'll see you all, or most of you, hopefully, in the full board. Thank you very much. Thank you.